Greetings in the name of the triune God. Welcome to the Rural Midwestern Pastor Podcast. My name is David Johnson, and I'm blessed to pastor the small rural congregation in which I was raised. Please join us as we explore together how the scriptures declare the good news that God's kingdom has come to us in Jesus. If you'd like more information about our small rural congregation, please visit SamanakBaptistChurch.org. That's S-O-M-O-N-A-U-K BaptistChurch.org. Thank you for listening. May grace, peace, and everything good be yours in King Jesus. Good morning. Welcome to the SBC Daily Word for Tuesday, April 6th, 2021. We are in the Easter season. Again, one of the things that I think we tend to forget, especially in our context, is that Easter is a season, that there's actually this season that we enter into leading up to Pentecost, where we consider the risen Christ, and we consider, especially in our gospel readings, the ways that he appeared to his disciples. So Samanach Baptist Church family, in the weeks to come, we're going to continue to look at these post-resurrection experiences of Jesus to his disciples and what we can learn about him, what we can learn about the world and the kingdom of God as those two things come together in the resurrected Christ who wants to appear to us, who wants to speak peace to us, and I'm excited about the Easter season that we're in. During this time of Easter season, for our SBC Daily Words on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of each week, we're going to be walking slowly but surely through the letter known as Second Peter. So today, we're going to begin with a little bit of an introduction to some of the background of this small letter, and then we're going to look at the first two verses. So as it relates to matters of introduction, there's basically just two questions that I want to answer. The first is this, what does Peter say? Now, a couple of reminders, this is an epistle. That's just a fancy New Testament word for a letter, which then reminds us that we are reading someone else's mail. So we have one half of the conversation, and that's going to carry with it some difficulties in understanding because we don't know specifically, except from what we have in the text, we don't know what's going on in these people to whom Peter writes. So I just want to first ask this question, what does Peter say? Because as we seek to formulate some of the background to this letter, I do especially want to be glued to the text. I just don't want to give you information that say, scholars tell us that this and this was going on. I want to show you some things in the text that could maybe help us piece together why it is that Peter writes this letter. This is a question for us to consider because especially in the first century Greco-Roman context, people just didn't write letters as a hobby. It was an expensive task to write letters on animal skin, to probably hire a secretary to whom you could dictate this letter, and then you have to hire somebody to hand deliver the letter. This is a very involved process. 
So there's some intentionality here. So what does Peter say? First of all, 2 Peter is a farewell speech. And the reason, or the things rather, that, that Peter says in this farewell speech are, he urges the readers to commit themselves to growth and perseverance. Secondly, in this farewell speech, he commends hope that Christ will return. One of the things that we'll see, especially towards the end of the letter, is that Peter is just always putting before us the hope that Christ will appear a second time. So he urges growth and perseverance. He commends, he presents before them hope that Christ will return. And then thirdly, he encourages holiness because Christ will return. I'm looking forward to unpacking a lot of what we see in chapter three, because sometimes for us, we think that the second coming of Jesus is just this event for which we wait. And then waiting, sometimes looking, just sitting on your hands, waiting for this event. Just like we Cubs fans waited for 108 years for them to win the World Series in 2016. That was a, a passive waiting. Okay, it was a waiting that involved watching television. It was a it was a waiting that involved, um, you know, just being a fan. But in some sense, no matter how invested we were in this team that so many of us love so much, it was a passive waiting. Now, what Peter's going to say is, the waiting for the second coming that we engage in is entirely different that he encourages us to live holy lives because Christ will return. So what does Peter say in this farewell speech? He urges growth and perseverance. He commends hope that Christ will return. And he, encourage whole, he encourages holiness because Christ will return. So we're going to be able to see those very themes in this letter. So that's question one. What does Peter say? He says those three things, at least. Second question, why does Peter say what he says? In other words, why does he decide in this letter to urge growth and perseverance, to commend hope that Christ will return, and then to commend holiness because Christ will return? Why does he say those things? Well, look with me in chapter 1 at verses 14 and 15, because we're going to start to see some events that were leading to why he says these things. Verse 14. Uh, let me back up to 13. I think it right. So I'm in 2 Peter 1, verse 13. I think it right as long as I am in this body to refresh your memory. Why does he need to refresh their memory? Verse 14. Since I know that my death will come soon, as indeed our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So this is a farewell letter. I'm going to write this letter to you, and I want you to keep it close at hand. I want you to make copies of it so more Christians can read it. The reason Peter says the things that he says about the second coming, about hope, and about holiness is because Peter knows that he is going to die soon. Now look at chapter 3, 
verse 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. First of all, you must understand this, that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and indulging their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So reason one that Peter says what he says is he knows he's going to die soon. Secondly, false teachers are denying that Christ will appear again. So Peter's going to die. So he writes this letter. And then in this letter, he wants to address some of the current issues that this community is dealing with. That first issue is there's false teachers. And those false teachers are doing two things. They're questioning the Christian hope that Jesus will come again. Now, again, this is just the essential fundamental Christian belief that Christ will appear in his resurrected body and that he will come back to earth to what Paul says in Acts 10, or Peter rather, what Peter says, connected to Peter here, that he's going to appear to judge the living and the dead. He's going to make all things new and give us resurrected bodies. So we're not specifically, when we think second coming, don't think about all the debatable issues related to rapture, millennium, um, tribulation. Those are all in-house, in-family conversations. Peter's interested here in this letter in just the essentials. That Jesus, like it says in the creed, will come from the right hand of the Father to earth to judge the living and the dead to then give us resurrection bodies. Okay, There are people in Peter's day who are denying that hope. They're questioning, did God really say that Christ is going to return? So Peter knows he's going to die. These are the reasons Peter says what he says. False teachers are denying that Christ will appear again. And then connected to that, false teachers are denying the importance of holiness. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive opinions. They will even deny the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Even so, many will follow their licentious ways, and because of these teachers, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Their condemnation pronounced against them not long ago has not been idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So, Peter says, grow, persevere. Peter commends hope that Christ will return, and he encourages holiness because Christ will return. The reason he says those things is because he knows, verses 14 and 15 in chapter 1, that he is going to die soon. Chapter 3, verse 3, he's also gotten word that false teachers in this community are denying the second coming of Jesus. And thirdly, they're also denying that holiness doesn't matter. Okay, So that's why Peter says the things that he says. So now we have the first two verses. This is just the introduction to this letter. And here's what I think we should see in this letter. Now keep in mind, Peter, who's about to die, has to deal with some problems that he doesn't want to leave behind as he dies. And the first thing that he does in this letter 
is he bestows honor on the readers. He doesn't chastise them. He doesn't judge them. He doesn't take them out to the apostolic woodshed and beat some sense into them. No, the very first thing he does is he bestows honor on them. So 2 Peter 1, verse 1, Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith as precious as ours. Okay, now you might have a different translation there. I've got the NRSV. This word here that's translated in mine as precious as ours, it carries with it this idea. Those who have been honored just like us, Peter says, by the faith they have received. In other words, what Peter's saying is you have received this apostolic faith and in receiving that message about Christ, the King of the Jews, who according to the scriptures was crucified, died, raised and appeared all according to the scriptures that in receiving that message they have now been brought as it regards honor to an equal standing with the apostles so the first thing that peter does in this letter is he levels their relationship he doesn't come at them and say i am peter an apostle listen to what i say from above you no he immediately comes to them as an apostle from a position of authority. But the first thing that he does is he raises the level of their relationship so that they are now peers. Now, this is provocative for Peter to do this. For Peter to, in that culture, believe that honor is zero sum. Are you familiar with that term, zero sum? Zero sum implies that if I have something and you gain in that area, then that means I lose that resource. What Peter believes here as an apostle of Jesus is that honor is not zero sum. In other words, for the apostles, for them to share honor doesn't mean they are going to lose honor. Sometimes, especially in that Greco-Roman world, honor was kind of like this commodity in a toothpaste tube in other words as as honor leaves the tube then it can never then get back into the tube what 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 peter is saying is that honor is not zero sum um a commentator who's been a conversation partner with me in this study named andrew mabuvi isn't that fun to say mabuvi m-b-u-v-i he says this, given that honor, both individual and group, was understood as a limited and scarce commodity in society, desire to attain it meant that there was constant competition for its acquisition, which on occasion would spur rivalry in contesting groups with each group claiming greater honor than its rival. Since honor could be lost or gained, it had to be constantly guarded. That's the way they viewed honor in that day. And what Jesus does as he calls the apostles to them is he says, it's not zero sum. 
you don't have to, and he says this in the, in the disciples, that the world goes this way. When people have honor and authority, they lord it over people. And then he says to us, not so with you. We don't do that. Greatness in the kingdom of heaven is through serving. Why? Because honor is not zero sum. So the first thing is he bestows honor on his reader is he gives them honor. How does he do this? Why does he do this? He does this by redefining honor. So they received a faith that was equal in honor. How did they receive it? Peter says, through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What broke Peter free from this Greco-Roman understanding of honor is that one, he understands that in Christ, he has been given the honor of the Godhead, that ultimately Peter's honor was rooted to the righteousness that had been given him from God. So for Peter, it starts with an understanding of God, that God is a God who shares his image with his human creatures, that God is a God who shares his glory and his honor with us. And if that is the kind of God that Christians worship, then we should be a people who are glad to share glory, who are glad to share honor, because we, just by bearing the image of God, understand that that glory is a glory and an honor that has been given to us. Therefore, if that is a gift, we should be a people who gladly give it and share it. But now more specifically, the honor that we have been given, the honor that God shared with us is an honor that is cruciform. The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus says in the Gospels before he goes into Holy Week, Father, honor your name, glorify your name. And how does that work itself out? It works itself out in crucifixion. So the honor that God has and is and shares with us is an honor that is cruciform. Again, our commentator, Andrew Mabuvi, isn't that fun to say? From a Greco-Roman perspective, the only problem in ascribing honor through Jesus is the fact that Jesus had died an ignoble and dishonorable death of crucifixion, the kind that Roman citizens were exempt. Making the claim that Jesus is conduit for the said honor would be rather absurd. Jesus himself comes as king and he experiences the most dishonorable thing that ultimately this God that is fully revealed in Jesus turns the world's understanding of honor and shame and glory upside down, that it is the honor and glory of God to be crucified even for his enemies. And then that is what leads to exaltation and glory. And beloved, that is the kind of God that we have been joined to. That is the kind of God we have been saved by. And that is something that we constantly need to be saved into, this new definition of glory and honor.
So just two verses, there's so much packed into these two introductory verses. Just two points of application, two takeaways. The first is theological. I want to use this text to teach you some, some very good, deep, robust, thick Trinitarian theology. This. Jesus is one with God and distinct from God. Jesus is one with God and distinct from God. Again, verse 1. To those who have received a faith as precious as ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to use the fancy grammatical terms here, but in the original language, there is one article, and then that article governs two nouns. And those two nouns are God and Savior. Beloved, this text is a very important Trinitarian text because this text says that our Savior Jesus Christ is God. This is called the Granville Sharp Rule. One article governing two nouns. Do you see that there in verse 1? The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the one the governs God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this text embedded within it is a claim that Jesus and God are one. But secondly, they are distinct. He continues, verse 2, may grace and peace be yours in abundance in the knowledge of God and of our Savior and of Jesus our Lord. That ultimately now the grammar in that sentence distinguishes between knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So within two introductory verses, we have Peter in nearly the same sentence declaring that Jesus is one with God and Jesus is distinct from God. So here's some Trinitarian definitions for us. Jesus and God are one in essence. They both fully possess the divine essence, but secondly, they are distinct in person. So here's kind of some catechism for us, some teachings about what the church has always in every place believed. How many gods do Christians believe in? One. We are monotheistic. We believe that there is one God, one divine essence, but then three persons possess the divine essence. And again, this is mysterious. We never shall think that we have this figured out, but just to kind of catechize us together, Peter tells us that God is one in essence, three in persons. So the first takeaway is doctrinal. Jesus is one with God and distinct from God. He's one in essence, distinct in person. Secondly, Jesus calls us to believe in an abundance of honor. And this is critical given some of the social issues that are going on in 2020 and in 2021, this whole idea of different races being honored. And one of the things that, that we must, as, as followers of Jesus, confess is that honor mattering is not zero sum. That when one ethnicity starts to have their value and their honor and their mattering raised, 
that doesn't automatically mean that then other races and other ethnicities lose their honor. Beloved, just as Peter said, as an apostle, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, I am an apostle. I want you to understand that as you receive that faith, the same honor is bestowed upon you. Jesus calls us to believe in an abundance of honor so we can be a people who stop comparing with each other, who stop competing with each other, wondering, okay, if you get honor, how can I work to get honor? And if you've done this, how can we make sure everything's fair? No, Peter comes to us and says, no, there is enough mattering. There is enough honor. There is enough glory to be shared with the entire human race. Beloved, I think marriage serves as an example of where this works itself out in the nitty-gritty dailiness of relationships. But ultimately, in a healthy marriage, there is mutual honoring. And what we realize is that as I honor my marriage partner, as I honor my spouse, that reciprocates. To honor my beloved is to then also grow in my own honor. As it relates to this, one of my favorite um, just writers, somebody who's just brilliant with the English language, Frederick Beekner, says this about marriage. They say they will love, comfort, honor each other to the end of their days. They say they will cherish each other and be faithful to each other always. They say they will do these things, not just when they feel like it, but even for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, when they don't feel like it at all. In other words, the vows they make at a marriage could hardly be more extravagant. They give away their freedom. They take on themselves each other's burdens. They bind their lives together in ways that are even more painful to unbind emotionally, humanly, than they are to unbind legally. The question is, what do they get in return? They get each other in return. Assuming they have any success at all in keeping their rash promises, they never have to face the world quite alone again. There will always be the other to talk to, to listen to. If they're lucky, even after the first passion passes, they still have a kindness and a patience to depend on, a chance to be patient and kind. There is still someone to get through the night with, to wake into the new day beside. If they have children, they can give them as well as each other roots and wings. If they don't have children, they each become the other's child. They both still have their lives apart as well as a life together. They both still have their separate ways to find. But a marriage made in heaven is one where they become more richly themselves together than the chances are either of them could ever have managed to become alone. When Jesus changed water into wine at the wedding in Cana, Perhaps it was a way of saying more or less the same thing. Beloved, just like in our human relationships, as we give ourselves to each other, we become more because we have given 
the hope of Second Peter 1, 1 and 2 is that there is an abundance of honor, an abundance of glory, an abundance of righteousness to go around. And just as Peter realizes that he gains by giving his honor to others, so we believe in a God who says, I refuse to be God without being in relationship with you, that everything God has, he shares with us by grace. And that's going to be what Peter discusses in verses 3 and 4, which we'll look at tomorrow. Thank you for joining me in this SBC Daily Word. May grace and peace and honor and everything good be yours. Amen.